so that's what we need to recover. Our goal is not to necessarily change society, it's to be obedient to the cultural mandate. Welcome back to another episode of the All of Life Show. I am one of your hosts, Stuart White, along with my beautiful and lovely wife, Alicia White. Babe, what are we doing in this episode? Today is our part two episode of our interview with Nancy Piercy. That's right. In this episode, we get to talk to Nancy about her latest book, which is called Love Thy Body. Love Thy Body is really interesting because Nancy takes the framework that she builds on in Total Truth and a lot of her other work and begins to explore how a lot of the sexual revolution has poured over into society and culture and the things that we see today and what does the gospel actually have to say about these things. Um, This interview is really good. Nancy is just amazing. I feel like we could have gone on forever and ever and ever talking to her and we almost did and that's why we have this in two parts. If you haven't listened to last Monday's episode about her book, Total Truth, I'd recommend going back and listening to that first and then catching up with this one. Yeah, you can definitely go either way here, but we do really recommend go back, listen to that episode because it's really good. And then this episode is also really good. So without further ado, here is Nancy Piercy talking about her book, Love Thy Body. So in Love Thy Body, that's your most recent book, correct? Yes, that's right. Oh, okay. So you do build upon the framework that you laid out in Total Truth, and you're talking about how the upper and the lower story um, really have begun to have adverse consequences um, in regard to human life and sexuality and culture right now. So I would say a lot of Christians, or maybe anyone right now, would say that the shift in what I believe you reference as this sexual revolution in Love Thy Body, um, how that has kind of, how it's been, it's like all of a sudden, oh my gosh, how did this happen? How did we get to here? But but you do talk about like how it's actually been happening under the surface for quite a while. And I would love for you to just like um, intro the book a little bit and, and touch on that. Yeah, so the upper lower story divide in the concept of truth has impact everywhere. I mean, if your view of truth uh, changes, then it changes everything. So I'm going to take the most obvious example, which is transgenderism. Um, The upper lower story divide has been applied even to the human person, the human being. And this is most obvious in transgenderism, where transgender activists actually explicitly say your gender has nothing to do with your biological sex. Your body tells you nothing about who you are. I recently read an, a book by a Princeton philosophy professor because you know what the philosophers say tends to filter down to ordinary people. So I think this was the book, first philosophy book on transgenderism. And the irony is that in the process of defending transgenderism, this professor said it involves self-alienation, self-division, and then uh, said, said literally, um, see if I can remember, remember her exact words. It was, um, the real 
body tells us nothing, real in quotes, meaning you know, your physical body mm -hmm. tells us nothing. It is not part of your authentic self. So kids down to kindergarten today are being taught that their mm -hmm. body has nothing to do with who they are. There was actually an, um, an article in the news not long ago, uh, but a kindergartner, a kindergartner, mm -hmm. excuse me, in this case it was first grade, a first grader came home and told her mother that she didn't know if she was a boy or a girl anymore because the teacher had said, just because you have girl parts doesn't mean you're a girl, just because you have boy parts doesn't mean you're a boy. And she literally said to her mom, please take me to a doctor so I can find out what I am. <laughs> and it was in the news because the parents were taking the, uh, the, the school to court and suing for emotional distress on the part of their, doc their daughter. But this would be a, a, a prime example where the upper and lower story division has been applied to the human being. And so you're right, that has been going on for a long time. When I, I do a talk on transgenderism, and I trace it back to Descartes, Rene Descartes, who in, uh, you know, what was it, the 17th century was already saying, uh, the body is part of nature, and from science we know that nature is just a huge machine, so your body is just a machine, and somehow your mind is a separate free agent from that. So he was already endorsing a very divided view of the human being. If you read books, um, books on uh, how we need to overcome this division, they will usually uh, refer back to Descartes. You know, this Cartesian divide, Cartesian is just the adjective for Descartes. You'll, so, you'll often find people blaming the, the Cartesian divide for the fact that we become alienated from our bodies, alienated from nature. But another key point, uh, stepping stone, was Kant, Immanuel Kant, who turned it, into not some, uh, turned it into a view of knowledge. He's the first person who said, the only thing we have knowledge of is the lower story, the realm of nature and science. We can't know anything that's in the upper story. We can't know anything about God, spirit, morality, the human will, uh, beauty, and so on. The, everything in the upper story is something that's unknowable. And, and therefore, he said, it's the, it's the human mind that actually um, imposes order on the world. So that was an important next step because he was saying it's the human mind that imposes order on the world. We can't really know that there's any, any external order. And Darwin was important. Usually, I, when I don't have much time, I usually just go back to Darwin uh, <laughs> because... He was the one who said that life is a product of mindless, purposeless forces, and therefore the human body has no intrinsic purpose that we're morally obligated to defend or to respect. And so, uh, and this is how you often, you often see homosexuality defended. There's a well-known uh, public intellectual named Camille Paglia, who you guys might know. A lot of times Christians read her stuff because she's a bit of an iconoclastic feminist. She does not agree that sex is just a social construction. She says, no, no, no. Nature made us male and female. Humans are a sexually reproducing species. And then you ask her, well, then how do you defend being a lesbian? Mm -hmm. And she says, literally, this is her exact words, why not defy nature? Mm. And she adds, after all, God, fate, excuse me, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. So that's the logic. Do you catch it? it he, she's basically saying if, I'm, if we're products of mindless, purposeless forces, 
then there's no purpose that we're morally obligated to respect. Our bodies tell us nothing about who we are. They convey no moral message. We may do with them as we see fit. The, the mind controls the body and can even contradict the body. Uh, a, BC, a BBC documentary on transgenderism said, at the heart of the debate is the idea that your mind can be at war, at war with your body. So this is extreme self-alienation that your mind is at war with your body. So what we need to do as Christians then, we need to ask why accept such a demeaning mm -hmm. view of the body? And even secular people are starting to see this. I read an interview with a 14-year-old girl who had lived as a trans boy for three years from age 11, and then at age 14 reclaimed her identity as a girl. And she said the turning point came when I realized it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. Mm. This came out after my book, but it would have been a great quote for a book titled Love Thy Body. <laughs> so even secular people are beginning to say, by the way, the, the phrase you'll now see um, among secular liberals is that transgenderism is body hatred. Mm. Body hatred. They're starting to see it. So that's why Love Thy Body is so uh, relevant to our discussion today because it says... At the core of this debate is a view of the body. And as Christians, we need to say the body has intrinsic value, intrinsic purpose, intrinsic dignity, because it's a handiwork of God. What God makes has value, and God made the human body. So we, we need to develop a positive message that will reach people's hearts. I think it's so interesting that people are willing to listen to, what did you say her name was? Was it Camille? Come. Right, Camille Paglia. Yeah, that that Camille could say could could be telling us that there is a that there's a war between your mind and your body, but then when Scripture tells us there's a body or there's a battle between flesh and spirit, people don't want to believe that or listen to that, but they'll believe that we can battle between our minds and our bodies, and one can win over the other, um, but then disregard a battle between flesh and spirit and. Um, from because just because it's coming from a Christian perspective or it's a biblical point of view, you know, yeah. why is it so easy to accept that one over the other? <laughs> like, the, ugh, goodness. Well, it's important to recognize that what we're talking about is quite different still, because, um, you know, Scripture teaches that body and soul are an integrated whole. Mm -hmm. you know, they, scripture does not teach that we have a con an outright contradiction. Remember, uh, Going back to, to someone like Kant and Descartes, the ones, like you said, who are paving the way for this, they were saying that the body is just a machine and the mind is, is, has, is free. Well, that's logically contradictory. Mm -hmm. You know, if we really are products of, of material forces, totally determined, then it's logically impossible for us to have free will. And so that's an actual logical contradiction. And that's why people use the, the imagery of two stories in a building. It's to say, these are logical contradictories. Christianity is not torn apart by any logical contradiction. What we're saying is the body and soul are complementary. And this is, this is brought out by the um, parallelism of Hebrew poetry. In, in the scripture, you know, my, when I refused to repent of my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Mm. So, you know, uh, God's words are health to the soul you know, the, the, and health to the body. There's a whole list of scriptures that talk about, you know, what happens in your soul affects 
your body. So we are an integrated whole. We're psychophysical unity. So that's what we have to insist on. Yes, there's a difference, um, you know, uh, when you talk about the flesh and the spirit, you're talking about the sinful nature. Mm-hmm. Yes, we sin. Um, and, the, and on an uh, existential level, we often feel that conflict. So it's important to notice that we often feel a conflict between our true desires and our sinful desires. But that's not at all what the secular world is talking about. It, today, like, so even as we're recording this, this entire month is uh, dedicated to everything, you know, on, on the spectrum, uh, LGBTQ, AI+, I think I've covered all of them now, I, I've lost track, but, um, and it, it's celebrated not in a day, not in a week, but for a whole month, all of these things are being celebrated. And, you know, for a lot of Christians, they're, they're going to feel like, oh, well, this suddenly came upon us. Uh, but but as we, we discussed earlier, it's actually been a gradual thing. Um, but in so, in the way that it was gradually introduced to us, Christians have, I think, failed to see that the water was beginning to boil, figuratively speaking. Um, and they have started to embrace these things more and more to where... Uh, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, things that would have been just blatantly outright, like, no, that's not what the Bible teaches, that uh, you cannot be a Christian and adhere to that other thing that totally contradicts Scripture, is no longer an issue. It, things, So many things now are being embraced. Um, so how, how do we overcome that particular issue? And what, what, and I guess another question I have actually, sorry, I, this is a kind of a long winded one, uh, is how do Christians actually embrace and, um, love people who are dealing with these things while also not being, uh, suckered into accepting the practices? Um, yeah, in Love Thy Body, I give lots of stories. You know, it's not just sort of moral arguments. I give lots of stories, so let me give you a few of those because that will bring it up, uh, bring it uh, to light. So my chapter on homosexuality is starts out with a fairly long anecdote about a young man named Sean who was exclusively attracted to the same sex. And what's interesting about his story is that he grew up in what he called a gay-affirming family and attended a gay-affirming church. So he did not think there was anything wrong with homosexuality. Um, he, he was not, when he changed, it was not driven by f- shame or guilt. So today he's a, uh, today he's married to a woman. You have to say that these days. He's married to a woman and has three children. And by the way, he's also a Christian ethics professor in wow. London. So you ask, why, is it, why did he change then? And what he says is, I stopped defining myself by my sexual feelings and instead started to treat uh, my body. Uh, I didn't try to change my feelings directly, which rarely works. He said, instead, I accepted my male body as a good gift from God. Mm. He said, I realized that in making me male, God had made me to interact sexually with a woman. And if I accepted that as a good gift from God, uh, he said, eventually my feelings followed suit. So that's really the big question at the core of this issue. Do we live in a cosmos operating by blind, purposeless forces, in which way, in, in which case Camille Pagli is right? We can do whatever we want. Or do we are, are we um, living in a cosmos designed by a loving creator who therefore had a purpose for creating us with the sexuality that we have? And that was a key changing point for another story, uh, another person I tell, whose story I tell in Love Thy Body. In this case, it was a woman who had lived as a lesbian for many years. 
and today is married and has two children. And she said the turning point for her, too, was accepting the biological sex God had given her. Here's how she put it. I came to accept that God had made me female for a reason, and I wanted to honor my body by living in accord with the Creator's design. So notice the positive language. They basically said, I want to honor my body. I want to live in accord with the Creator's design. I want to respect my biological sex. I want to have inter internal harmony between my body. You know, the, the BBC documentary that said there's a war between the mind and the body. These were people who said, no, no, no. We're, God calls us to inner harmony with our body. And the thing is, it makes sense to take our identity from the body because feelings change. Mm -hmm. They can change. They often do. Uh, one study found, for example, that 80% of people who come out as homosexual change their gender identity label at least once. Mm -hmm. At least once, 80%. That means for many people, it's more than 80%. So this does not sound like a trait that is biologically determined. Our feelings do change. And I'll give you one more story. Um, it's uh, Rebecca in, uh, in Lovely Body. Rebecca was attracted to, to other women, and it continued even after she got married. She would have girl crushes, so to speak. Um, and she talked to her husband about it. They were both Christian. And he said, whatever your feelings are, because God made you female, you can be sure that you will ultimately be more fulfilled with a man. Mm -hmm. And of course, he applied it to himself as well. He said, whatever my feelings may be, because God made me male, I can be absolutely certain that I will be ultimately more fulfilled with a woman. So these are the kinds of things that, I, these are real stories. These are real people who did make, who did make a change from uh, same-sex attraction. Um, with Rebecca, it took a couple of years. You know, we don't expect overnight changes in most cases. Um, and that's something that when we're dealing with someone, we need to recognize it may take a while. But those are three cases where they all said, I decided to take my identity from my body as a good gift from God. And their feelings eventually came into line, into alignment with their body. So I, th I would suggest that the way we talk to people is to emphasize the positive, to emphasize that, you know, your body has value and dignity. I mean, the Darwinist view that you are a product of mindless, purposeless forces does not lead to a high view of the body. I have had students who, who were confused about this. They said, well, materialists have a higher view of the body, don't they? Because after all, they think the material physical world is all that exists. Well, you can think it's all that exists and still think it has no value or dignity. <laughs> Uh, and, and that's what we have to convey to people, is that the Christian view has a much higher view of the beauty and value and dignity of the human body. We should be focusing on the positive message uh, when we talk to people. I love that you explain that um, in the how culture right now is kind of um, setting our feelings at uh, that's the priority, whatever our feelings are, then everything else we get to, um, that we get to build from there. And Stu was also talking about how the, how Christians have become increasingly more accepting of some of these major cultural changes that have happened. Um, I, this is a question and it's, it's not in the questions we sent you. So I apologize. But I do want to know how how in danger if we're talking about allowing our feelings to determine um, what we do with our bodies, there have been some TED talks in the last year or so, I believe, of um, of people who are saying like 
as far as pedophilia goes, it is, it is people are born with pedophilia. This is, they did not choose this and we need to be more accepting of this. Now in the Ted talks, they're not, they're not saying that we should necessarily accept their behavior, but I don't think that 20 years ago, we would have said that if someone wanted to change their gender, that that would have been acceptable behavior either. So is this where we're going as a, a culture? How, how, um, how in danger are we of, of um, allowing and accepting behaviors such as pedophilia because of where culture is going and has gone? Yeah, I know. Some people will say, oh, transgenderism is so extreme. Surely this will blow over. I don't think so. When you mm -hmm. see how deeply rooted the thought forms, the worldview is, um, and how long it's been in, in developing, um, it's not going to go, it's not going to blow over overnight. Let me give you one more example just because um, it might help explain it as well. Like, so let's, let's take abortion. Um, how does abortion show the, the split between an upper story and a lower story? Basically, um, secular bioethicists today agree that life begins at conception. Mm -hmm. Not all ordinary people know that, but secular bioethicists are all agreed. You won't find anyone really arguing against the idea that the fetus is human from conception. So how do they get around that to support abortion? Well, what they say is, well, the fetus is human at conception, but it does not become a person until sometime later. And personhood is usually defined in terms of mental abilities, some level of cognitive functioning, uh, self-awareness, and so on. Well, if you can be a human at one point, but not a person until sometime later, then clearly these are two separate things. So being human is in the lower story. That's something we know by science. But being a person is in the upper story because that has to do with the value you place on human beings and uh, you know, whether they warrant legal protection, whether, what, what moral status they have. And so abortion also illustrates this split view of the human being where, you, where being human is not enough for human rights. This is another danger, by the way. You were talking about um, you know, what's, what's coming next. If being human is not enough for human rights, right? If, you, if the fetus is not a person yet, quote unquote, then it's treated as just a piece of matter. You know, it can be killed for any reason or, or no reason. It can be tinkered with genetically. It can be uh, picked through for sellable body parts as Planned Parenthood does and then tossed out with the other medical waste. That's exactly the term that's used in medical journals, that the, 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 the fetus is a piece of medical waste. So being human is not enough anymore for human rights. You have to earn the right to personhood by achieving a certain level of cognitive awareness, function, cognitive functioning, and so on. And so what's happened here to the concept of human rights? We've lost, we have already lost the concept of human rights. And of course, euthanasia is exactly the same reasoning, mm -hmm. just in the reverse. You know, if a person loses a certain level of cognitive functioning, then they're said to be no longer a person and their treatment can be withheld. Their organs can be harvested. Their food and water can be discontinued. So that again, being human is not enough for human rights. And so that's, that's another uh, piece of this puzzle is as we go forward, if you, if being human has become, excuse me, if being a person is not connected to being biologically human, then what is it based on? Well, it turns out it's completely arbitrary. You know, it's every bioethicist draws the line at a different place so that some will say, well, it's before birth, you know, sometime before birth. 
And others will say, no, I mean, there's some birth defects that don't show up until after birth. And so if parents are gonna have the right to kill a child, to be blunt, to kill a child after birth because it has uh, some kind of genetic defect, then we have to say it's not a person until later. Uh, Francis Crick and Watson, the, the scientists who discovered the, the DNA structure, have both come out saying, you know, we should give the, the newborn three days of genetic testing to decide whether wow. it has the right, has earned the right Gosh. to live. And Peter Singer, who is an ethicist at Princeton University, so these are not fringe characters. Um, Princeton University actually says three years of age is a gray area. Oh my I mean, goodness. after all, how much cognitive functioning does a toddler have? So this is where we're going also with the denigration of the body. You know, just having a body, a human body, being biologically human is no longer enough for human rights. And that's going to have a tremendous impact on all of us who are humans. You know, if, if we can be def uh, defined out of the realm of personhood, and, and we've seen it before, right? We saw it under the Nazis. We've mm -hmm. seen it before that certain people groups were said to be not fully human and then it was okay to wipe them out so this is another one of the consequences you ask about the future this is another one of the mm -hmm. consequences that we're going to see there's something to be said about that too i know people will say oh we make an appeal to um hitler you know everything it's it's as bad as hitler or the nazis or something but understanding the history of that that they they literally demonize and reduce their opponent or their intended victims to less than human and then they are able to do whatever they want with them and you see that in culture today you see that in politics today um, but maybe not to the degree of, of murder but to, to your point it is only a matter of time where you devalue those who are made in the image of God. And, and I do think that's that's what lies behind this, the, the spirit of this age, if you will, of taking God's image and marring God's image and devaluing God's image and destroying his image. I think there's a spiritual component to that that is just hell-bent, literally, on destroying the image of God and the image bearers of God and, and reducing us to you know, merely the, the sum of our parts or, or whatever they want to call it. Um, I, I heard somebody even say, you know, if you take a person, a body, and you burn it, th there's only about $5 worth of, of value in that person when, when all is said and done of materials. Um, and, and I remember hearing that and just thinking, is that what people are really thinking today? <laughs> they're, they're actually going, people are only worth whatever their financial market value is worth or um, their ability their, to produce their ability to produce or children being born uh new york is an example of you know laws that they've passed of up to the day of birth you can have an abortion and they celebrated this and it used to be that abortion was tragic and should be rare but legal that was the the, the position that was taken and now it's like no, any reason at all. It's a right. It's it's a it's a freedom, and they're less. They're not human until they take that first breath. And um, some will say that slippery slope mm -hmm. argument is uh, is just a weak argument or something. I'm like, I actually every time I look back and say somebody mm -hmm. made that point, and now here we are. Uh, you know, it, even in in your your book, Total Truth, you you set up all of these things, and and it leads into love thy body, and it's like you you would think that this was written yesterday uh, all of it. it it's it applies so well to what our culture is going through 
And it really is that because something within hum- humanity aims to destroy itself. And yeah, um, like Stu, you always say progressivism will always progress, even if it's right off a cliff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's what you said at the very beginning when you said it's the impact of worldview. You know, we just come back to what you believe determines your actions. Mm-hmm. You know, what, and Schaefer used to say this all the time. He said, if we could just understand the secular worldview, we could get ahead of it. And we wouldn't always be on the defensive. We wouldn't always be reacting. You know, we would know perfectly well that if, you know, when our scientists accept materialism as a worldview, that we will get uh, moral implications from that. That, like you said, the human being is just, well, the the typical term now is you know, a, a complex biochemical machine. And the actual chemicals, uh, the, you said $5? I think I've seen like 97 cents. You know, It's, yeah, it's yeah. not worth it. The actual chemicals in the human body are not worth very much. Um, and by the way, if you don't like Hitler, talk about slavery. Yeah. <laughs> slavery. Yeah. Pe- people said if you're a certain race, you're not fully human. Uh, this is our own history. We don't have, you're right, we don't have to talk about Hitler. We can talk about lots of other examples. And yeah. um, <laughs> read Thomas Sowell. He's the one who has lots and lots of examples of oh, yeah. other cultures that have selected some racial group and said they're not fully human. You know, in Malaysia, it's the Chinese. You know, it's, you know in different countries, it's different groups. But it's, it's very common that people will say, you know, this group is not fully human and therefore we can oppress them. So all that to say, you know, I, th- I think that Schaefer was right when he said it's your worldview that leads to cultural change. It's you know what you believe about human beings will ultimately shape your behavior. And uh, and when you say, it, I don't think that it, that is at all a slippery slope argument. I think that's a logical argument. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Cultures tend to unfold the logic of their presuppositions. <laughs> and that's because we're rational beings. You know, ultimately yeah. it's because we're made in God's image and we're rational beings and we tend to live out the logical consequences of what we believe. So I don't accept the slippery slope argument. I think it's pure logic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It it happens because it's true. It happens because it really does lead to one thing leads to the other. As much as we, we're humans are very interesting. We're great at blinding ourselves to the obvious, but then still and denying that it, it will lead to that, and then still following through with that exact train of thought and logic to its full completion. Um, Cause there's, I think there's just still something within us. It's like, well, I gotta be intellectually honest here, uh, even though I will not upfront say that I am, but it's like, that's just where it leads. Like, well, of course, why wouldn't we abort a child at, at the day they were due or three days after or three years after? Uh, it just, it all makes sense. Like if, if even abortion back to that, it, the viable viability argument like well it wouldn't survive on its own outside of the womb like no newborn would survive on its own outside no of the womb were someone not to care for it so you could say oh well a child until they're able to get a job and cook and clean and drive a car they really have no value to society and you know it, it just goes it goes on and on um so how do you, this is my final question here, but how do you seek to transform culture without mistakenly trying to make heaven on earth? I think this is something Christians struggle with. And I had this conversation with a friend recently of, we fail to see that there's the kingdom of this world and kingdom of God. And and I agree, but I, I still am like, okay, but we're supposed to have a part in this. We're not just supposed to sit back and be like, ah, it's all going to burn. You know, I'm just sitting here waiting to, until Jesus comes back. How would, how would we engage that? Um, 
two thoughts come to mind. One is, we're called to be faithful, not successful. I think that was Mother Teresa who said that. We're mm. called to be faithful, not successful. If you think you have to be successful, I think you will overvalue uh, social change. You'll put too much emphasis on, on social change, political change. Um, you may not be as successful as you like, but you can have a clear conscience before God if you've been faithful. You know, faithful to his calling, faithful to his leading, faithful for, to what you know is true, um, courageous in opposing, you know, when, when, when meeting opposition and so on. You're just called to be faithful. You know, I, I have to tell you, this is a huge relief for me. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, this is personal. I don't think, oh, I want to change the world with these books I've written. I never think that. I think I'm faithful to the calling that God gave me to write about this, yes. write about that. Um, and the second thing is, faithful to what? Well, f faithful to the cultural mandate. You know, this is where, I mean, when you say we're supposed to have a part of it. When God created human beings, you know, he's, he's set the stage, you know, he's, he's created nature, he's created the other animals, he creates the first humans, and then he tells them what their purpose is. Why did I create you? He gives the first humans their uh, job description, and he says, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. And be fruitful and multiply does not just mean have families, but it means all the social institutions that historically grow out of the family. So it's schools and churches and businesses and governments and so on. So basically the first, the first uh, part of the cultural mandate is to develop the entire social world and then have dominion over the earth. I mean, we tend to think some Neolithic farmer, <laughs> but mm -hmm. that's not what it means. It means, it's, it means um, take advantage of the, uh, develop, develop the, the physical world, the natural resources. So yes, it's plant crops and grow food and process the fiber into clothing, but it's also, you know, build computers, mm -hmm. build buildings and bridges. It's compose music. One of my students said, oh, come on, compose music? What's that have to do with the physical, you know, dominion over the physical world? And so I play the violin. So I said to him, what's a violin made out of? <laughs> Wood. <laughs> what's the bow made out of? Horse hair. <laughs> So you see, all the transcendent beauty that you associate with music starts with the natural order. It starts with harnessing the natural resources that we are called to be creative because we're made in the image of a creator. And so you can think of it this way. A lot of the Bible is about what to do about sin because in sin we get off the track and God has provided a way for us to get back on the track. But what was the track? What was the original purpose? That's why Genesis is so important because it says Basically, your, your job was to create civilizations, both the social and the natural world. It's to create cultures, to create civilizations. And so he puts us, he, he's, you know, people, if you, if you want to think of it this way, God saves us from sin, but he saves us to what? <laughs> to what? Mm -hmm. it's, it's to build cultures so that when you are in politics or when you're in business, so if you're a musician, if you're a teacher, you are doing that in obedience to the cultural mandate. So that's what we need to recover. Our goal is not to necessarily change society. It's to be obedient to the cultural mandate. So that way we're not sitting around passively, like you said. Um, you know, we're not just called to say, okay, I, I've been saved. I know I'm going to heaven. Now what? I go to church every Sunday and basically just wait around for heaven. Yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, that's not the goal. The goal is to live out the cultural mandate and to understand that that is part of our that is part of our job description, just as it was for the first humans. 
Well, Nancy, I was going to say when you're talking about being made in the image of God and and our creator, and I I listen to you speak and listen to your brain working as your mouth is moving, and I think I don't think there's any better testament that points to a creator. Two atoms did not just <laughs> burst into the, in, into formation and create your brain. That was a creator for sure, and I'm so glad that he made your brain so that you could be with us today talking about everything that's going on in our world. We appreciate appreciate you and your time and your work um, and your books. They've they've meant a lot to us. And I know despite whether you are just being faithful or not, you are making a huge impact in our culture today. So thank you for your faithfulness in that. Could you tell our um, listeners how they can, uh, where they can get your books and how they can connect with you or find out more about you? Yeah. So all of my books, of course, are at um, the normal places, you know, your local Christian bookstore, Amazon and so on, um, and you and I do have a website, nancypiercy.com, nancypiercy.com. Although I'm pretty active on Facebook and Twitter, so that people often contacted me contact me via Facebook as well. Um, and I'd be happy, very happy to hear from you. But if you want to, oh, I'm not visible, right? This is you, this is just podcast. Yeah, it'll, <laughs> so just gonna, the audio will gonna, be used. Yeah. Okay, because I was going to say I have a little, I have a display of my books behind me, but um, that's not going to help your audience. <laughs> no, so, but we will yeah. be we'll, we'll put the we'll put the link to your books in our show notes so that they can easily click on them and know exactly where to get them. Okay, I, yeah, I appreciate that. That would be good. Yep. Well, thank you so much uh, again, and we definitely would love to have you back on. Um, I feel like we've just scratched the surface on so many things. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. I really do appreciate it. This was uh, it was delightful talking to you. 